Hi, I'm Dave Barnes. And I'm John McLaughlin. And welcome to Dadville. Dadville is a podcast where we talk about life, love, and the pursuit of awesome dadding. It's funny thoughts and deep talks. So please, enjoy your time here in Dadville and enjoy this episode with... Chris Hatfield. Chris, we are... Do I, should I call you Professor, Mr. Astronaut, Dr. Uh, I, was, I was a colonel in the Air Force. I was the commander of a spaceship. So some people call me colonel. Some people call me commander. Uh, but most people call me Chris. If I can call you uh, John <laughs> and Dave, then I'll call you John and Dave. Yes. That's, okay, great. So... so this is this is I mean John and I were getting together because we're professionals before um this and sort of uh getting ready for this and we are I'm really 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 excited about having you on. Really One excited. of the things that we do here on Dadville to start is we sort of read what we call the brag sheet. And I I have to say um this has got to be the most impressive one so far. And we haven't had a lot of slouches on. Um it's just that there's nothing I've never read anything quite like this. So you may have to put your humble hat on for a second um, and, because this is, I can't leave any of this out. I literally thought <laughs> I need to edit this. And I was like, no, there's, I'm not editing this. I'm just going to, I'm going to read this. So, so buckle up. Um, this is your life. Here we go. So Chris Hadfield, astronaut, first Canadian commander of the International Space Station, referred to as quote unquote, the most famous astronaut since Neil Armstrong. Colonel Chris Hadfield is a worldwide sensation whose video of David Bowie's space oddity seen by 75 million people, was called possibly the most poignant version of the song ever created by Bowie himself, which is one of, I mean, this just keeps getting cooler, which is hard to believe from that sentence. But acclaimed for making outer space accessible to millions, another phrase, it's, <laughs> all of these phrases are amazing, and for infusing a sense of wonder into our collective consciousness not felt since humanity first walked on the moon. Hadfield continues to bring the marvels of science and space travel to everyone he encounters. Okay, buckle up. It gets more interesting. Has flown three space missions built. <laughs> I can't help but laugh when I read this. Built two space stations, performed two spacewalks, crewed the shuttle and Soyuz. I'm not saying, am I saying that right? How do you Pretty say close. It? Soyuz? Okay, that was close. <laughs> okay, good. And in 2013, named the commander of the International Space Station for six months off planet. It's like an ad lib, a mad lib. Formerly NASA's director of operations, Hadfield is a heavily decorated astronaut, engineer, and military fighter test pilot whose many awards include the Order of Canada, the Meritorious Service Cross, and the NASA Exceptional Service Medal. He, named, he was named the top test pilot in both the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy and was inducted into Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame. There's more. An internationally best-selling author, Hadfield has written four books, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, You Are Here, his children's book, The Darkest Dark, and the critically acclaimed The Apollo Murders, a thriller set in space in his first fiction novel. He also released a musical album. This is a joke, man. <laughs> this is like the flexing of all flex. Space Stations, Space Sessions, sorry, Songs from a Tin Can, and it's featured on TED.com for his talk, What I Learned from Going Blind in Space, <laughs> which has been viewed more than 11 million times. Still not done. Hetfield is the co-creator. Hetfield is a co-creator and host of the internationally acclaimed BBC series, Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes, as well as the co-host with a guy named Will Smith, who's getting a start in Hollywood, of National Geographic's One Strange Rock, directed by Darren Aronofsky. He also produces a celebrated Rare Earth series on YouTube and is a creator of the onstage celebration Generator, which combines science, comedy, and music. Additionally, 
Adfield is an adjunct professor at the University of Waterloo and with the Masterclass Online, an advisor to SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and chair of the board of the Open Lunar Foundation. That is, without a doubt, the most impressive like five paragraphs I've ever read out loud in my Every, life. All our listeners are just quitting whatever they were doing. Just, everyone's quitting. Everybody's bored. Everyone's done. But uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird when, when someone else takes the effort to sort of string out all the various things you've been up to in your life. But but yeah, I think everything you said said was true. And uh, like, how do you? Th- this is what we always I always love to ask. Like hearing that and, and having to sit and hear that read because it's it's. It's overwhelming. I mean, which I loved watching you listen to all that. Yeah, Just, I can feel the discomfort. <laughs> uh, how do you, like? How do you feel? I guess two questions to start. One, how do you feel hearing that and just your accomplishments and what you spent your life doing? And then two, like, what would fifteen-year-old Chris say? He'd say, "Cool," and I, yeah, like, "Hey, wow, we're going to get to do all that stuff. That's great because that's all the stuff I'm dreaming of doing." You know, right? Wow! And, and uh, having David Bowie like your music, flying spaceships, and being a, a fighter pilot, and and I, I was a uh, uh, yeah, you missed some stuff, but I was a, uh, <laughs> I, I knew I was going to. Yeah, anyway, I mean, yeah. it's incredible. I, I was sort of a combat pilot in, in the Cold War, not really combat, but you know, intercepting uh, Soviet Jeez, airplanes oh and. Uh, and so, yeah, my 15 year old self would just like, yeah, let's get at it. What do we need to, you know, what do we do next? What do we got to, how am I going to get all those things to happen? And I was thinking about all those things, you know, when I was 15. Um, wow. And then now looking back on it all, it's, it's, I mean, it's surreal, but at the same time, yeah. I, I, mm. What's different, I think, guys, is each one of those events that you list, they're personal to me. Like, they sound mm. sort of external or clinical or like some sort of qualification you met, you know, but each one of those represents uh, a personal part of, of what was important to me or something that I really worked mm. hard to do and that meant a lot to me and that took a lot of work. And yeah, I, yeah. That, you know, in most cases, I, I'm like, hey, that was, that was kind of the final moments of a whole bunch of self change to get that done. So, mm. so it's, it's kind of nice to, to take, you know, I don't think much about it, but it's kind of nice that you spent the time reading through that list. I'm way more interested in, you know, what I'm going to do next. <laughs> it's like when I was 15, but yeah, those are all uh, stuff, things that I've done. And, um, and yeah, I'm happy with how life's gone so far. It's really- Gosh, it's incredible, man. I, I love that. Like, after reading all that, what, you know, I agree with Dave, like this may be our most impressive brag sheet that there's also like, oh, there's some stuff that w- was left out. Just fighter pilot during Cold War. Just... <laughs> Everyone listening, I'm sure at the end of that was like, but is there more? Is that everything? It was such um, a cool night. I mean, we were holding alert and the horn went off in the in the quick reaction facility. We had to get the airplane airborne. You had to go from dead sleep to airborne in under 12 minutes, scrambling out through the night, stop for a refuel in Gander, Newfoundland, and then sprinted out over the North Atlantic and uh, and found these big Russian bear bombers, you know, making a racket up at above 30,000 feet. And doing this first time ever F-18 intercept of these big bombers who were practicing, you know, cruise missile launches on North America and making sure that they weren't hostile that day and then coming home. An amazing, you know, very uh, high consequence activity, but really exciting as a human being, you know, to have the skills and the, and the trust 
by all of NORAD to be able to go do that thing and make sure today wasn't the day. So yeah, it's easy to say, but the actual event was was also so much. I mean, you know what I'm realizing as you're as you're talking about this stuff is like <laughs> how much we have in common. <laughs> Is initially just when I hear that, I think that is so much like a musician's life. I can't even handle it. But but also, like, at what point is life like so underwhelmingly mundane after you have done these things that are just like heart rate at its highest? You know, as you said, I can't, that's beautifully put high consequence. But like, yeah, is it weird living life after you've done these things? Dave, I think the real question there is why were you doing those things? Or what? No, but. <laughs> But yeah. I yeah, really think yeah, yeah. that's the key answer to your question. If you were doing it to impress somebody or to get adrenaline into your veins or to sort of thrill yourself, then maybe, yeah, the rest of your life would mm. suck in comparison. Right. But I've never been motivated by that. I've always been trying to find something that serves a useful purpose, that challenges me right to my very limits, and that I try and do everything I can to get good at that thing in advance. And then when I have to go execute it, like, you know, when you're getting on stage to play, you don't just show up, you know, you, you, you do a lot of work, you become competent at, at all the various skills you need to be a good public performer. Same sort of thing for, for doing a, a combat intercept. And then when the moment comes, execute it as well as you can. So then when you're finished, you can look back and go, well, that was really fun and cool. And I did it as well as I possibly could. And, and I'm, you know, I'm proud of how that turned out. And it's only kind of set me up now to even tackle more complex things in the future. So I, I'm, you know, as an astronaut and a test pilot, I'm not a thrill seeker at all. Yeah. I, I'm much more interested in trying to manage complicated things and speed and, and risk and responsibility and do that well. To me, that's where real satisfaction yeah. is. One, one of my yeah. big takeaways from that, and I'm sure John is too, that now that I can tell my wife that uh, you said, that being a combat pilot is, is somewhat akin to playing music live. And I'm going to take that with me when That's I go. That's what I've been That's telling a... my wife for years. <laughs> I do. I do want to ask real quick though, the, the story that you, that you brought up, like, so you are in Canada somewhere you're sleeping with your crew or whatever. And then an alarm goes off 12 minutes later, you're in a fighter jet airborne on your way to somewhere in Europe because some bomber jets were, you know, seen on the radar somewhere. How long, like, I, w I, w I want a couple more, like, specifics there. Like, how long does it take for you to get from where you are in Canada to where these, these planes you are? You know, it's, it's the coolest thing, John, because, uh, you know, you've got your clothes laid out, so you can just throw them on. They've already got the jet plugged in overnight, so all of its computers and the inertial navigation system, they're all running. So when you jump in, you kind of, you just have to get the seat belts done out properly. So, you know, if you had to eject, you, you'd stay with the seat and then, you know, get the canopy and get taxiing super fast, middle of the night, get out to the runway, throw in the full afterburner and get airborne and start heading east. But the beautiful thing is you get up nice and high because in a jet, you go faster if you're up where the air is thinner. So you get up above most of the air, you know, up in the mid 40,000s. The beautiful oh, wow. thing up there is... Now I had to drive right to the, the very easternmost part of, of North America, which is uh, the Newfoundland coast there near St. John's. And um, the beauty of being up there is uh, you're in or looking up uh, at the northern lights. And when I was up there, I would shut off every light in the cockpit so that I could get my night vision perfectly adjusted. 
and then the stars you could see oh, like oh there's gosh. nothing between you and the stars and i was thinking someday if i ever get to be an astronaut it's good i can't believe it. it'll be even better than this and to see all that and during my uh, first spacewalk uh several years later i i got to be outside in the night when we went through the aurora through the world no lights and it was like pouring around the ship and going between my legs and that link between that night you know racing out to go intercept soviet bombers off the north atlantic um you know that kind of laid the seeds of curiosity in my mind and then to, to be able to to go out there and you know surf on the aurora uh a personal experience you know it it just it's this this bottomless well of delight that I always had to myself of those experiences, no matter what you know was actually going on around me in real life. Wow. So, so, Unbelievable. <laughs> there, there are a million questions that come to my mind from just that <laughs> like four minutes. But one of the things that I, I have to know is when you're doing these things, I mean, you know, be it you're in space, you're on the space station, you're um, spacewalking, which I just can't even believe I'm asking a real human this question. But is there a sense, this would be my struggle, is like, take this in, like, be here right now, because you are experiencing something, experiencing something people in the double digits have experienced in, in the history of humanity. How hard is it to be present in those? I mean, like, what are you thinking? Because because the other thing that I think I have to remember that I don't know this because I, I'm not an astronaut, which is I know hard to believe for a lot of people listening. But, you know, are you because uh, you're also having to think, OK, let's make sure the suit's good or my level's good. Everything's I'm still connected. I'm not getting too far from the ship. So it's not just you get to pop out there and have your birthdays. Yeah, and, right. You know, you're, you're like doing work. I mean are you able to be present in that moment? And also I, I want to tack onto that. The, the fact that like whenever we have been in some amazing scenery, like up in the mountains skiing or something like that, you, there's this like tension where you're like, I'm going to take a picture here and, and it, but it's not going to do it justice. And your situation is times a million. Like you're not going to fully be able to, let people in on what you're experiencing right now. No, it's like trying to take a picture of a sunset or a picture of a waterfall yeah, or something. Right. You can maybe get a little taste of it, but it, you know, it's nothing like the reality of the human experience. Um, you know, right from the beginning, Dave, uh, when I was a uh, a fighter pilot, I realized that this was a really rare privilege, big responsibility. Mm -hmm. But some there's a whole bunch of people that would work really hard just to get uh, an F-18 ready for me make sure everything's working mm -hmm. full of fuel and they would trust me to get in it and go out there and bring it back empty and do everything that I was supposed to do. And I recognized, you know, the public trust and responsibility that goes with that, but also the great personal joy and privilege of it. And so mm -hmm. I resolved, I am going to get the most out of every single F-18 flight I mm -hmm. ever go on because mm -hmm. this, there's going to be a stage in my life where there's not some young sailor, you know, saluting me and giving me the keys to the jet. And so I think I've tried to conduct my whole life that way too, mm -hmm. including the spacewalk, because you can get so wrapped up in the, you know, problems you're having with your suit or the big list of tasks you got to do and everything going wrong, um, to not notice <laughs> you're on the outside of a spaceship holding on with, you know, two fingers. And, and the world is right there going by at five miles a second. You know, I went around the world 10 times while I was outside. And so, 
I, I tried to keep that exact, and I, it's the same mindset I keep no matter where I am, but there more than mm. all was don't, yeah. don't miss my own life. Don't mm. miss the, the incredible rarity of this magnificent experience. And especially because as you say, you, you know, you'll get some pictures of it that will sort of remind you what it felt like, but right. uh, it's one of the rarest of all human experiences over the last whatever 300,000 years yeah. and and so to have had a chance to do it soak it up make it part of who you are and allow it to you know, kind of expand who you are and think really deeply about what it means to you because that's going to be important to you for the rest of your life and i don't think that just applies to space life. yes the, a, a, right. special, you know? man <sighs> I feel like we need to build in time for me to just sit and rest <laughs> and think. I'm like, I'm getting overwhelmed by just trying to imagine what you've experienced. You know, we, like Dave said, I mean, we have been so excited and really looking forward to to talking with you. And, and you know, I think this is our 65th episode that we've done on, on this podcast. Wow. We've, we, and we've had, you know, 64 great guests. And we, one thing we always do up front with all of them is ask, you know, have you been to outer space or not? And it's been frustrating. <laughs> really, really low percentage. It's yeah. been really, really frustrating for Dave and I to be disappointed yeah. time and time and time again. So I want to say up front, uh, we need to ask your for forgiveness. We've already, we've already derailed our plan here, but one thing we try to do with all guests is we're like, you know, we, we try to come up with questions that are interesting, not only to us and hopefully the listeners, but to our guests as well. We want to ask questions that they haven't, you know, been asked a million times, but we need double forgiveness <laughs> for is... you because A, we didn't, we didn't really get there and B, we didn't even really try because we have <laughs> questions that we know... <laughs> We know you've been asked a million times, but I ha I'm looking at a list of questions that I just have to ask you. So first off, okay, whenever we've watched, you know, space movies or whatever, and, and they've got them, they got the astronauts, you know, strapped in, they're, they're at the top of the rocket, they're getting ready to blast off into space, right? To me, I'm always thinking, how terrified are these astronauts in this space right now? And you have done this multiple times. So I, I, I want to know, like, what was it like the first time you did it? And how did it compare with the other times? Sure. I flew as part of the flight crew. So there's four people sitting on the flight crew of a space shuttle. I flew that twice. I flew space shuttle Atlantis, and then I flew space shuttle Endeavor with my crew. And I wasn't the commander, I was just part of the flight crew. And then I flew a Russian ship, the one you were pronouncing earlier, the Soyuz, and I was the pilot of it. Um, so three different chances to be lying on my back, uh, waiting for the, for the engines to light. And you're right, the first one, uh, I, I knew technically what to expect, and I'd been in a lot of simulations, but I'd never actually had the experience yet. So, so that, uh, mm. sort of uh, increases your unease just because you don't know what's going to happen for real. Um, yeah. But I decided that that's what I wanted to do when I was nine years old. I think if they just grabbed the, the two of you right now out of the studios that you're sitting in and plunked you into a, a space shuttle and said, we're launching in uh, three minutes, 
And if you make a mistake, you kill everybody. You know, you would have great justification to panic and and the, you know, and uh, and to be paralyzed by the fear of not only something going wrong, but you doing something right. and soiling your pants. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're, right. you're wearing a diaper, so it's okay. But um, <laughs> not for that reason. But anyway, um, but uh, I decided that that's what I want to do tonight. So, mm-hmm. so, and I said, you know what? That's going to be a really risky, dangerous thing to do. But that's what I want to do. And so now I need to stop making it just scary and actually start getting good at it when I was nine. Mm. And so I was like, how do you turn yourself into someone who can fly a rocket ship? When I was 11, you know, I learned to scuba dive because astronauts so train underwater. When I was uh, 14, I studied, you know, uh, a bunch of meteorology and stuff. And 15, I got my glider pilot's license. 16, my powered pilot's license. Um, and then, uh, you know, bummed around Europe for a while because wasn't ready for school, but then went to university and ended up going to four different universities, uh, including uh, on the University of Tennessee grad. I saw That's that. Right. I saw yeah. that. And, um, and, and, and I became a fighter pilot with all of the dangers that go along with that. And then a test pilot, which is a really radically complex technical type of thing. And that was just to get me in the door to be an astronaut, you know, at yeah. 32 years old, 33. That's just to be a brand new baby beginner astronaut at 32 or 33. And then I trained specifically on shuttles and systems for a couple of years. That allowed me to get assigned to a flight. And then I trained for that flight specifically every day for a year and a half. Um, wow. So by the time, you know, so that's 26 years from the time I was, I was nine. 26 years of understanding the difference between um, fear and danger. You know, understanding yeah. the dangers and changing who I was so that I didn't just have to be afraid because accepting that this is a risk I'm going to take. So I'm going to get the skills. So I have a lot more going for me than luck and fear. And so when you talk to astronauts now, the, the new tourist astronauts, you know, uh, whatever, uh, Bill Shatner or people like that, you know, they have no idea what's going on and they have no ability to fly the ship. So, so they're yeah. just sort of rolling the dice, but it's a pretty safe little ship. But the shuttle, on my first launch, um, it was still a very new vehicle, and the odds of it blowing up during launch were one in thirty-eight. Oh so, my gosh! So you really got to know what you're doing uh, in order to um, think that you can defeat those odds. And yeah. but as a result of all of that preparation, um, I was excited. I was super duper focused, but I wasn't afraid. You know, hmm. I, I didn't need to be afraid of it. I was ready for it. And I'd much rather be ready than afraid. And I think every professional astronaut uh, that has been given that responsibility, they they would tell you the same thing. They're not not afraid. Sure, they're respectful of the danger, but that they've been working on. And and so now they're they're ready, which is which is a much better way to be. Dave, I want to give a shout out. And when I give a shout out, I always laugh because it just brings me so much joy to give a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with free samples. You know it, John. This time of year, my allergies are in fuego. They're Mm -hmm. always on the attack, but I use this and you should too. Oh, I do, Dave. 
Every day in our house. Yeah. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, which is, this is me raising my hand, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill to relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, runny nose, itchy and watery eyes an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. John, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for a long time, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for a run without my eyes watering. I may be crying, but it's not sure, from allergies. Totally different. And I can sing without feeling like I have a, like a big old, let's not even call it a frog. It's, a, it's like a toad. It's like a family of toads. It's a family. It's a turtle. Yeah. In my so you ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? Yeah, me. I it's am. time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Dave. Um, Dave? Oh. Uh, I guess it's just, it's just me here. Uh, hey guys. Listen, you know, I, I I bet if Dave were here, I uh, guarantee you he'd be talking about how getting your daily vitamins and minerals, you know, is so important to support your daily lives. You know, he's always talking about that kind of stuff. And I would be like, oh, my gosh, a thousand percent, Dave Barnes. You know, you don't want to miss out on something that could be helping support your immune system and sleep habits. And then guarantee you he would bring up Athletic Greens. And I would probably say Athletic Greens at the exact same time, you know. And he would probably say, like, you know, John, I've told you this story a million times, but I started taking Athletic Greens because I don't like taking pills and vitamins, and I wanted to, you know, find an easy way to get good nutrients into my diet. And I would be like, Dave, I am so with you. I've told you this story a thousand times, but I used to open the refrigerator reach in and grab a handful of dry kale and just shove it into my mouth and just stomach it down just to get some nutrients in my body. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't have to live like that anymore. Why? Because athletic greens. I put that powder in some water every morning and it's delicious and I get all the nutrients that I need in my body. Listen, the founder of Athletic Greens created the product after seeing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrient routine on your own. You know, he probably saw me shoving kale into my mouth. And then I guarantee you, Dave, would be like, you know, with AG1, do you know what you're getting? And I'd be like, tell me. And he'd be like, you're getting 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics. And I'd be like, what about adaptogens? And he would, he'd say, yes, you're getting adaptogens too to help you start your day right. You know, all the ingredients support better sleep quality and recovery and mental clarity and alertness, people. It's just too good to be true, but it's true. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you got to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash dadville. Again, this is athleticgreens.com slash dadville to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And then Dave and I would probably high-five at the same time and then go drink some AG1 from Athletic Greens. 
because we love it. So, wow. so, so, so how, you know, you've done this a lot. You've been in space for how many cumulative hours is it? I don't know how many hours, about half a year. Good gracious. So, so when you think of those times, and this may be too hard of a question, and this is fair if it is, but do, do you have a memory of that? Is there, is there sort of, um, is there sort of a moment that you go, this was like, of all of the times, I'm sure there's a million memories, but do you have one that you go back to and you go, that's sort of the thing I find myself thinking about the most? I got a bunch of little vignettes like that, um, you know, and some of them, they, they just pop up and I've forgotten, you know, that that, that was a cool thing that happened. Um, we were coming across Australia in the dark once and um, and I was floating at the window. I had, had like 10 free minutes mm -hmm. and um, and I'd been trying to get a good picture of Ayers Rock, you know, Uluru, that big rock in the middle of Australia, but it never did because it doesn't show up from space very well. But we went into the darkness and we came up across Indonesia and uh, they were having this enormous thunderstorm, like a, a thousand mile long thunderstorm. Oh my! And gosh. just as we were coming up to it, Tom Marshburn, who's actually up in space right now, but one of my crewmates, Tom had a little bit of time and he came floating into the airlock with me. And he, he and I happened to be there for the, I guess it was, I don't know how many, five minutes or something that it took to go from one end of this enormous storm to the other end. It was, it was as if it, the whole world was lit up by flash bulbs underneath us. And we learned that lightning is contagious. You would see lightning at one end and then it would ripple and catch and run for a thousand miles of this storm. And, and we were, you know, trying to picture all the poor little Indonesians there huddled, you know, mm. getting hammered by this storm underneath. But right. we were seeing the same thing from a position that only two other human beings out of all seven and a half Jeez. billion were seeing this thing. And the two of us were talking in like whispers and hushed tones to each other because of the, the magnificence of it and, the, and mm. the privilege of it and, and, the, and the, the moment in time of it. And whenever I look at a thunderstorm now, <laughs> you know, down here on the surface, I, I think of, of that, you know, little three or four minutes I shared with Bob mm. uh, seeing a real violent part of our world from, from an almost un inaccessible place to experience it. Yeah. So are you guys at all like, um, I'm sure there are a million ways in which musicians and astronauts are, are exactly the same, but one, one of the things that we do as musicians, that's one of my favorite things is I love getting together with a bunch of guys and girls that I've, you know, toured with or played music with over the years and talk about old stories because you just can't hold all those memories in your head, you know, of all those years of touring. And I like going through those stories because it helps me remember all these great times that like I would have otherwise forgotten had we not had that, that story or at that chat and all that. But one of the things that I, that I love, like the memories that I really love are the times when things have gone like horribly wrong on stage. Now, obviously you could argue that the consequences of something going wrong during one of my shows is uh, is lesser than you guys up in space. Well, well we, but, we both go down in flames, though. So it's exactly, touche. Touche. Exactly. Yeah, different touché. schools of thought on that. But what have there been some times when you've been up there and 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 some things have gone wrong and they've been you know some really dicey moments? Oh yeah, uh, stuff goes wrong every day. Uh, oh wow! 
uh, it's a big, complicated machine, the space station, biggest thing we've ever built in space. And you're, you're not only the laboratory attendants and rats, but you're the, the, the building superintendent and, and you're, right. you're the, the, the emergency medical technicians. And someone dials 911, you answer the phone. I mean, you're in, you do everything, <laughs> right? You're the doctors on board. So, so we do a lot of training, like that's an understatement. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know which one. What, uh, one day I was, I was, it was like just four days before we were coming home from my third flight. One of the cosmonauts floats up to me, Pavel Vinogradov, and uh, he's like, uh, he's like, Chris, Chris, and Houston's going to show And I'm like, what are you talking about, Pavel? And he's saying, hey, Chris, there's something really interesting going on outside that I've never seen before. It looks like little sparks coming out of our ship. Did Houston see anything? And I'm like, shit. And so we <laughs> that's not good. So we float to the window and there there is this stuff spraying out of our ship in little shiny little bits. And I thought maybe we'd been hit by a meteorite. Uh and it was maybe just paint or something. But we watched it and realized now we're we're leaking something. And we oh get gosh. back and you know talk get guys talk. I was the commander, you know, so get some of the guys talking to Houston. Get some of the folks looking at all of our data for all the pressures and everything and see which tank is losing pressure right now. And some other guys digging into the books to, uh, uh, to try and really understand, remember that part of the ship and what could possibly be leaking up there. And it turns out the main coolant of our whole ship, the liquid ammonia, was now spraying out to space. You know, and uh, if you can't cool the ship, then very soon the temperatures are going to start to run away and you're going to have to start shutting important stuff down. And pretty soon after that, uh, you're going to have to abandon ship. You got to be able to regulate temperature because in the sun, it's like, you know, plus uh, 400 degrees up there, you know, so, oh my so you need cooling. Anyway. Can I ask you this really quickly? What, what, what would it mean for y'all to abandon ship? What does that look like? Uh, we would, uh, you know, close things up. There's a protocol, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. You try and preserve it, try and keep the ship as healthy as you can, turn down all the systems. Get into your little ships because there are two little Soyuzes at that time. Close the hatches, and then uh, once you close the hatch, then you're sort of separate, and then you can take your time and undock and come home. But huge deal to, to abandon the world spaceship, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And how yeah. many how many people are up there in this moment? Six, six. Okay. And uh, and so we're talking to Houston, and we realize it's we got to do an emergency spacewalk to try and go stop this leak. And uh, fortunately, we got a spare uh, big pump module like the size of a fridge out there. So I take my two most experienced guys, who are Tom and, and uh, Chris Cassidy. Chris, who used to be a Navy SEAL, and, uh, and Tom, who's a medical doctor, and uh, he has a degree in engineering physics as well. Smart guy. But anyway, so get those two guys and super panicky, crazy day of building procedures, inventing a procedure, changing, get, reconfiguring everything. But the next morning, early Saturday morning, getting them into their suits and then putting them out of the airlock and then helping them, you know, working from inside, looking out the windows as they remove. And don't you want to get ammonia in your suit because you sure don't want to bring ammonia back inside where you have to breathe. And, uh, and then getting it done, you know, I think it was a four-hour spacewalk, bringing those two guys back in. And then very carefully with Houston's help, repressuring repressurizing our ammonia system. And finding out that hey, we we fixed it. We stopped the leak. We'd saved the day. We didn't even have to bring up more ammonia. We'd done it quick enough that we had enough reserves of ammonia on board. So it was a real, a very complicated thing. It could have been a disaster, yeah. but it ended up being triumphant. But it was yeah. purely the result 
of like decades of work and training. And we'd already been in space for five months that my guys were still ready and had the energy reserves and, you know, all that stuff to be able to respond and surge like that just before we were coming home. So there were a lot of things went wrong, but that to me, that was uh, as, as high catastrophe a level as possible. And yet we saved it. And, uh, and that pump's still working up there right now. So, so to, to, I'm realizing something as you're telling these stories is that maybe more than any person on earth, every time you tell a story, it's got to be followed by questions because nobody knows what you know. But I have two quick questions that follow. So one, when you say they would have to send more ammonia, what, is, what does that even mean? They just like Amazon just shoots it up y'all's way. I mean, like, how does that happen? Well, when you're, when you're building something in a remote place, you know, like if you've got a cabin up in the woods, when you first go there in the, in, you know, at the start of the season or something, you bring a bunch of stuff, right? You bring a few propane tanks or whatever it is you right, bring, right, right. you know, so you have enough stuff. And so NASA thought about the space station the same way. And it's got uh, extra capacity of a lot of things that, that you might leak or use up like oxygen and water and, and ammonia. <laughs> Those little yeah. things. And so, yeah. uh, so it has some ammonia in the big reservoir tanks. Uh, but if, for whatever reason, we had a leak for a long time and had to repressurize the ammonia tank, then you would have to bring an ammonia tank up from Earth and then go out on a spacewalk and plummet into the system. And, you know, sort of like uh, filling up any pressurized tank anywhere. But you know, pretty, pretty tough circumstances. So nice that we didn't have to. How do they, 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 how do they get it to you? Um, well, we have different ships coming up, uh, re, uh, unmanned resupply ships, like robot ships. And uh, there's some made in the States, there's one made in Japan, one made in Europe, and one made in Russia. And so depending on when, you know, which one's coming next and what its capability is, then, you know, they would manifest liquid ammonia onto one of those uh, as early as, you know, as the next one's coming. And it always gets okay. reprioritized like that based on the stuff that's broken. So then, so then second quick question, when, when someone, what is the difference? I'm going to, oh my God, I'm about to show my hand on, on my education. Don't embarrass us, Dave. I know, I know. I'm so, I'm going to apologizing right now. And there's no judgment. Okay. We're in the trust tree, Chris, and let's all be gentle. Just the three of us. It's fine. But at, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And the millions listening. What, what? What is the difference in the pressure outside of the sh So when those guys are acclimatizing back into the ship, how big of a change is that on pressure? Um, is that even the right question? Yeah, it is. Uh, we, that's a big question. What pressure should your spaceship be? And when the guys went to the moon in the 60s and 70s, they kept the ship at really low pressure, about one third of the air pressure that you have there in Nashville. So you're, you're just a little under 15 pounds per square inch, but we ran that spaceship at five pounds per square inch. But the trouble is if you build a space station down at five pounds per square inch, then all of the air-cooled stuff, like your laptop, you can hear if you listen, there's always those little fans running in your laptop, anything, yeah. they're going to overheat because the air is too thin. So since we were close to Earth, we just decided we we're going to make the space station at the same pressure as Houston or, or, oh, or wow. Florida, where we launched from. So 14.7 PSI, pounds per square inch. And we're just going to make it the same atmosphere as we have under oxygen and, you know, like uh, 20 and a bit percent oxygen and 80 percent nitrogen and, and come up some other trace gases. Because then everything we bring up, we don't need to constantly be uh, adjusting our atmosphere. But when you go outside on a spacewalk, if your suit was pressurized to 15 PSI, you couldn't bend your elbows or close your fingers. The suit, you know, it's like a balloon that you twist until it gets so stiff, yeah. you know, it's almost like it's a solid. Um, your suit would be too resistive. So 
the spacewalking suit is actually 4.3 pounds per square inch, so less than a third of an atmosphere. So when you go down a spacewalk, you get in, you get into your suit at that 15, at you know, normal natural pressure. You get into the airlock, and then we slowly vent or, or recover the air from inside the airlock, and the pressure drops and drops and drops until it gets down, to, you know, to five psi and four, and then your suit is now starting to inflate because your suit's going to hold 4.3 psi, and so when when you finally get the airlock down to basically zero, then you can you know open the hatch and grab onto the sides and pull yourself out into the universe. And the difference between you and space is about is about 4.3 you know psi. So uh, you know if you think of a tire with four pounds pressure, you know it's not very much, right? But that, yeah, that's right. that's all of the oxygen that's keeping you alive. That and, and because um again, <laughs> really good question. By <laughs> Thank you. I want everybody. We're just going to put that on loop for the rest of this podcast. By the way, but 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 it's because and and again, I made it. I may lose any um admiration you had in that last question because outside there's zero. You have that. That's the whole thing. Is you're acclimatizing from inside to absolutely zero, zero when you go out, uh, out in, in yeah. space. If you if you run into an air molecule, like it's it's rare. You know, there's a little bit of atmosphere. Uh -huh. We're only 250 miles up or 200, 300 miles up. So the atmosphere doesn't suddenly stop. You know, it just slowly tails off, you know. Yeah. And, um, and so you still run into the occasional molecule of the atmosphere up there. And if you were to total them all together, the, the big space station, which is like a football field going through space, it's running yeah. into enough little pieces of the atmosphere that it has about as if it was like the weight of a penny. It's about that much wow. drag or that much impact with molecules trying to slow it down, about the weight of a penny. So yeah. some of those pieces are still hitting you when you're out on a spacewalk. But if you try and measure the pressure outside with a barometer or whatever, it, it will just show zero. There essentially zero. there aren't enough air molecules out there to register any pressure at all. You are in the eternal empty vacuum of the universe. That's how my dating life felt like in high school, by the way. That's exactly how I described it. So, so you have, you've been uh, up in space three times. You spent a total of 166 days in space, if my facts are correct. A little under half a year. Um, yeah. And so, you know, again, I apologize for constantly trying to uh, equate being an astronaut to being a musician. But, you know, Dave and I have toured a lot over the years. And, and one thing that my wife would say if she were here in this interview is the reentry is a thing. Like when I'm on the road and there's a certain level of intensity that comes with your day and you're doing your thing and you're playing the shows and, and then you come home and there's all kinds of, there's reentry for me, there's reentry for her, there's reentry for our, our kids. What, what was that like? when you would come back i mean i i can't imagine that the days up there have to be there's it's so other even the mundane quote unquote stuff that you guys are dealing with has such intensity what's the reentry back into not just reentry back to the planet earth like physiologically but what's the re-entry like socially familially all that kind of stuff yeah it's 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 a really perceptive question john and i think there is a parallel because when you're on the road and you know i'm, I'm a small-time musician but i 
I've spent time in the road and, and I've actually toured with Bowie's band, you know, with Mike Carson and Earl Slick and stuff. And of, of course you have. Take, of course you have. But I'm not, you know, and I, you know, or the Bare Naked Ladies, good Canadian band that tour with those guys. But well, oh, yeah. so I am not, you know, I'm just a regular hack musician. So, but I get a little glimpse of what life might be like for, for those really, uh, you know, good and, and professional musicians. Um, and and you're you're treated different, right? When when you're on stage, and you gotta you gotta feel different, yeah, in order to do the job right. And you need mm-hmm. to be the 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 person that is doing that job. You need to do it really well. And so it shifts your thinking. It definitely shifts your priorities and maybe your self image. And and so when you come back to some other set of circumstances, even the way we phrase it, right? We don't say we're going forward to home. We say we're going back to home. Wow. And, and that's, that's kind of maybe something you need to snap yourself out of. Because while you were gone, they got along just fine without you. Mm. And you're, you're not that pivotal in the day-to-day. Or even if you were, they adjusted for your absence and, right. and found mm-hmm. a way to do just fine without you there. And so uh, you're not rolling back in to just, you know, pick up the reins and, and, and you know, whip the horses just like you just backed away. Um, right. You're actually entering into a different set of circumstances mm. than the one you mm. left. And, yeah. and so I thought about that a lot. And, mm. and you know, try, my wife and I have been together since high school. And, and to at least give her a tiny bit of the respect that she's earned um, and recognizing that she's been running this whole thing. We have three kids and, you know, all of yeah. the pets and complexity and stupidity that goes along with parenthood. And, and <laughs> she's been doing the whole thing and, and making yeah. all the plans and dealing with all the problems. And I'm now like an, uh, an invader, an interloper, uh, a, mm. a big new disruptor, a new problem uh, coming into this mm. balance. And so I, I, I thought about it and, and, the way I, in my first book, I, I wrote about it as well. And I'm, I'm always pretty confident as a fighter. I was used to be a downhill ski racer as well as a teenager and, Jeez, and, and ski instructor. And, you know, as a ski instructor, racer, fighter pilot, test pilot, I, you got to have a lot of confidence, you know, mm-hmm. otherwise you can't yeah. do those jobs. And right. so I'm pretty sure, you know, in my heart of hearts, the number I show up, no matter where I show up, uh, I can be a positive influence. You know, hey, let me mm-hmm. let me take control. Things are going to go better. You know, that's, that's yeah. how I feel about myself. But anybody who's actually in a complicated situation, they see some idiot like me rolling in, thinking he's the answer to everything. And they recognize he's not a positive influence. This guy is, he's a negative influence. He's breaking stuff. He's making, he's making out-of-date calls. He's, he doesn't understand the nuance of what's happening. And so I actually right. set myself the target of trying to come in neutral. In it. Mm. Just mm. try and not exert myself for a while until I get a sense mm. for what the new normal is. And then yeah. maybe be a lot more selective in how I try and offer up uh, maybe some, some ideas or, or help or whatever. <laughs> I'm not sure I don't do it perfectly, but, uh, but that's, that's how I aim to do it. And my wife would tell you that I sure don't do it right, but, but that's, that was what I kept in mind. And I think it helped anyway, I'm back yeah. off the road, just recognize you're coming into a different set of circumstances than one you left and be respectful of. You know, it's really easy to get caught up in the business of life and forget to take care of ourselves. Our sponsor today, BetterHelp, is reminding us to invest in ourselves. 
And one way that I take care of myself is by going to therapy. BetterHelp is an online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. We are proud to be sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy here at Dadville, and Dadville listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Dadville. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Dadville. That is so wise. I'm, I'm sure it must be tough to, to be, you know, in one moment, the ship is leaking ammonia. You, you are the guy, you're the dude, you're the guy in charge. And then a week later, you're home and the kids aren't getting ready for school. You're the guy you're in charge. And then that moment to have the wisdom to be like, no, 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 I'm going to. You're like, guys, I don't know if I told you this story yet, but gosh, just a week ago, we were leaking a moment. And, uh, yeah. you, you know, one of the things that I wanted, one of my favorite books I ever read is, this, uh, it's called you two at the end of the world. And, and this journalist went out with them for two years. It's a great book in their Zuropa tour. So it's like kind of them at their, at their, at the Zenith of their powers, you know? And, um, uh, one of the things that it's my favorite part of the book is he talks about when Bono would come home, he and Allie, his wife. I say that like I've even seen them before in person. Um, <laughs> but they would, uh, she would say, listen, you have to spend a week in the hotel sleeping, like just just getting that out of your system, like the road life. And, you know, it, Bono's crazy, but it was never anything like, you know, licentious. It was just road life. You know, it was different hours. It was, they, they, they you know, they just lived a different life. And so did you guys, did you and your wife ever, ha did y'all have any patterns? Did you have anything that was like, I'm sure, just you had to come home with with NASA and whoever you're working with to do that version of it, whatever kind of the detox, I'm sure a million questions and interviews you had to go there. But did your did you in your marriage ever have a system where it was kind of like this is kind of what we've learned helps the most is as you reacclimatize the family, you either like, you know, it, did it look a certain way? Well, I think I was uh, NASA took the role of Bono's wife um, mm. in that they said, uh, OK. And it wasn't maybe by good psychological design. It was just how it worked. They needed me and my body mm. in order to get all the scientific data they could almost all day, every day for weeks after I get back from a space. Oh, wow. And in fact, you couldn't even go home for several days. You have to stay and live in the medical quarantine facility as they uh -huh. uh, yeah. are, are extracting everything. Plus, after six months in space or whatever, 166 days. There's uh, there's a lot of rehab, you know. You've lost bone, and and your balance system is shot, and your immune system's depressed, and and stuff. So it takes a while to get back where you can even walk. Properly. I didn't even know that. And so, um, so so that gives your family a little grace time, you know, where yeah. where you're in and out, but but you're sort of getting reintroduced. You know, you'll be there for meals maybe, and then maybe you get half a day with them. And then maybe you can spend the night, but then you got to go back to NASA for most of the day. And so it's not a square cliff. It's like a long, steady, uh, you know, slope of getting back to whatever the new normal is going to be. And, uh, wow. and I think that, that turned out to be really helpful. And so, you know, uh, what you guys have learned from practical experience, uh, mm. probably uh, NASA's psychological support team 
whether they intended to or not, they were doing the same thing. Yeah. And so what did that, when, when you think about your kids, cause you, you have three, is that right? We do. Yeah. And they're all grown now and, and, yeah. and um, 38, 36 and 35 or so. About that age. So, so when did those, when did your longest times of being gone? Like, when was that in there? I know they're all different ages, but when did that kind of land with them? Yeah. My first flight, they were little kids. My second flight, okay. they were teenagers. And my third flight, they were in their twenties because I flew about once a decade. So, um, so very different experience. The first time, you know, we were launching from Florida. So mostly they just wanted to go to Disney World, you know, and we were the studios. And, and dad's going to space. How cool is that? And dad, dad has a work thing <laughs> yeah. he's got to do, but we're mainly going to Disney yeah, we're, World. We're sponging off the business trip here. That's great. <laughs> and, uh, and then the second trip was just, um, uh, you know, things had gone wrong. You know, it was around the time of... Uh, you know, other accidents. And my kids were old enough now, they realize people mm. could die doing this thing. And so yeah, there was a lot yeah. more sobriety to it at that point and a lot more angst and awareness. And then as adults, they're, they're a little more world experience, a little more fatalistic about it. And they had to travel all the way to, you know, Russia and Kazakhstan to come and see me launch because I was on the Soyuz. So then they're just, they're adults sharing in the experience. So very different. You know, I was going to say, um, in which was the third trip the one you were gone the longest? Yeah, the, the first trip was eight days. The second trip was 12 or 13 days. And the okay. third trip was whatever's left, 150, 40 days or something. Wow. And are y'all, especially for those first two trips when they're still so young, are, are you able to talk to them every day? Here, here's a story for you. After we launched from, uh, from Kazakhstan, my, you know, my wife and family, you know, kids are all there. And one of them had a significant other. So uh, you know, her, she was thinking, if, if you're actually going to marry this guy, then he's got to come and share this experience because it's too big. So Helene had brought along the whole, this is my wife, she brought along the whole troop. And, and then now it's like the 23rd of December and they're in Kazakhstan. And they're like, what are we all going to do now that dad's left? And so she said, we're going to go to Israel and spend Christmas in Israel. Uh, wow. Because you can still get tickets and because uh, nobody's been there before. So she took the whole family down to Tel Aviv. And so I get to the space station and I've uh, got Helena's, uh, I don't know, her regular phone, I think. And I'm like super happy and proud. I'm on a space station and there's this weird way you can, you can call someone on the phone occasionally. And so I called them and, uh, and it's, and they, you know, Helena passed the phone around and everybody told me what it was like for them. And then I called them the next day, you know, Hey, how's it all going everybody? And then I called them on the third day. And it was funny. My eldest said, dad, we get it. You're in space. Stop calling us. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so one of the things that I'm so fascinated with in these, in these last few minutes, I, I, I would love to hear you speak to like, what is it, how in doing what you've done with your vocation, how has it informed your parenting? Like, I, I can't imagine uh, what it's like to sit in space and get some feeling of your place in the world. But how, how does that uh, with, from everything you've learned from, from, you know, test pilot and that just to, you know, spacewalking, ha having kids, how has it informed that experience? Well, we decided to have our kids really young because the military was going to post me to remote bases in Northern Canada and where my wife, she was a computer programmer and, and business person, but she wasn't going to get work in, you know, Cold Lake, Alberta and Vagadville, Quebec. So, so we decided let's have the kids right away. So part of the life determined the age at which we have children. And that, that obviously is very influential in how you raise your mm. kids. Uh, but then the second was 
the work that I did in order to do those jobs, it really molded me into the adult that I am right now. The way that I wow. prepare for things, the way I value things, the 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 successes that I've had, you know, all of those mm. were, were not just shaped by this simple piece of spaceflight, but the entire oh, lifetime yeah. that was necessary in order to get into space. And mm. and so uh I've tried to use some of those ideas in in how I gave a value system as best I could to to our kids, you know, and yeah. and to try and say, hey, these are the things that have worked for me to accomplish the stuff that I think is important. The, the, to me, I, I don't really care what you do, but I want you to be passionate about it. I want you to love what you're doing. I want you to enjoy it and want, you know, mm. hopefully to, to earn a good living at it. And uh, and so all three of them have gone in different directions. And and the other piece though, there's a lot of fame in being in doing the things that I've done. And I'm very much mm. a public figure in a lot of the world. So it really cut into privacy as well. And so um, my kids spread to the world as soon as I got out of school. You know, one's lived in China for 15 years and they've all wow. 80 or 90 countries. Wow. And one lives in, in Ireland and one is, uh, he's a, a videographer, filmmaker, and he's all over the world, partially because they need to be able to seek out just being accepted for who they are, not just mm. having name recognition and then having false expectations put on them. So mm. I think... It has its downsides, like anything mm. a parent does, and hopefully it has some of its upsides. Mm. And in the overall balance, I think it gave them more opportunity and more insight into the world than, than a lot of the professions I could have gone mm. into. Yeah. I think it was a net positive, but it sure isn't perfect. You know? <laughs> net positive is great. Right. I love it's that. It's not a perfect thing. But, um, but as, as a parent, you've got to do who you are, right? You, you can't. Mm. You can't just pretend to be a parent and you yeah. blow it every day. And I used to say, you know, the uh, good intentions sacrificed on the altar of reality every single day and, and wow. myself and the next day going, okay, I, I did got this right yesterday. I didn't get, mm. right, let's try and do a better job today. Wow. That's a great word. You know, it's something that I think about a lot. And I know Dave, Dave and I have talked about this a lot is, is, you know, being musicians and just being sort of self-employed, uh, we we can very pretty easily control the intensity of our careers and like how much we work, how much we tour, how you know how much I'm back here in my little studio writing and practicing, all that kind of stuff is like that's a daily thing that I keep an eye on as a husband and as a dad. You know, maybe one week I feel like, you know, I, I need to really lean in here and get some stuff done and work a little bit more. Maybe if I overdo it one week, the next week, I'm like, all right, I need to balance that out a little bit more and spend some more time with the family. And did, how did you feel like in your career, you know, as an astronaut and, and even now and all the things that you're doing, is that something that you felt like you had control of? Or is that, you know, being an astronaut, that's an all or nothing thing. There's not really, I can't imagine you had a lot of wiggle room. Being a combat fighter pilot, uh, obviously, you are, uh, you are ordered in your life. You know, you're ordered to do that. Yeah. Being a test pilot is, is very similar. And being an astronaut, it's the same thing. And I was, so I was a, a, a public servant. And people forget mm -hmm. what that means. You're a public mm -hmm. servant. 
That means you aren't saying, hey, this week, I think I'm just going to spend a little more me time or family time. You're, you, someone else has authority for your time for yeah. the entire 35 years that I worked for the wow. Force and the Space Agency. And so, um, and, and they could, I mean, obviously, when you sign up for the military, they can tell you, you, you know, you need to go and die. You know, they have that level. That's what that's what the level of public service is, or the public expectation. You know, like we expect from from our police forces and our and our military, and it's the highest of all asks. You know, and people yeah. volunteer for it. But once you're in that system, then um, it it ultimately has to be allowed to win. And so it's just part of the deal if someone in the family is in the military or or is in a role like an astronaut, and and so. Uh, that means it puts a huge burden on the other members of the family to take up the slack. And I did everything that, you know, I could. I, I was like the coach of their soccer teams, but I couldn't be there every week. I, I helped with their swim team. I, you know, we'd, we'd do projects, I, you know, we would, but, but at any given moment, NASA could say, hey, the launch just slipped the week. Remember all those plans you had for Christmas? Nope, we need you in mission control through the whole Christmas holidays, no choice. And, yeah. and, and, and no, you can rail against it. You can just go, hey, but also I get to fly in space and, you know, uh, surf on the Aurora. So, okay, I'll take this part, you know. And, um, and, and so it just required uh, my family to adapt to all that. And so you had to be a little more um, flexible and just say, hey, this week, it actually, there's a lull. And so we're going to go do something cool. And what I tried to do for my wife, uh, every year was take the kids away for 10 days and let her just be by herself. Wow. He thought that was the greatest gift I could ever have bought her. Yeah. Because where I would take the yeah. kids to the Grand Canyon or, or to, you know, on a whirlwind tour of Europe or something. And she could have just, you know, one plate days, one, one fork, you know, for the whole day. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. I love that. And she was working full time too. So yeah. it's a huge ask for her. And then for the kids, I tried to take each of them on one of my trips every year where, you know, I was going to speak somewhere. So, wow. you know, so I get the one-on-one -on -one time with them. So you try and adapt, but, mm, yeah. um, but no, uh, public service and, and an uh, externally driven life, it has real benefits, but it definitely has its own costs. Yeah. And, um, and, and everyone's just got to draw the line depending on the career that they've chosen. Yeah. Best right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I love that intentionality. That's inspiring to hear you say. One of the last things, and we have a couple of questions we have to ask everybody and release you back to uh, the Aurora Borealis, but what, um, or I guess today, the ski slopes. Um, one of the things that I loved reading uh, about you in, in your bio, your brag sheet, was just the word wonder. I thought that was such a beautiful word. And I, and I would love to hear you, you know, any thoughts you have around that. I can't imagine anyone that has more authority on that word than you might because of what you've seen in your life and been able to experience. And I think especially around kids, and I think something that we talk a lot about on this podcast is this idea of the tricky part of the information age where, you know, you can find out everything you need to know immediately or look up that thing immediately. How much, you know, it's a struggle to still have wonder, to still look up at the stars as a kid instead of just looking it up on your iPad and going, oh, there's a star, it's cool, and you move on. But as someone who would have such an authority around that idea, around that experience, you know, what do you think is important for those who are listening, who have kids and we're trying to think about wonder as from someone who has been able to do that so well and articulately? 
um, I think they need the, uh, the, the direct honesty and frankness of actual experience. Mm. You can read everything there ever is to read about the Grand Canyon, but that's not the mm. same as standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon yeah. at dawn. Or yeah. you can read about the stars or use your app, but uh, that's not the same as, as you know, taking the kids in a canoe out to the middle of the lake and, um, and counting satellites going over mm. or, or everyone gets, you know, uh, whatever, another marshmallow if they see a shooting star or something. And, um, and so never tried to substitute a virtual um, experience for the real one where we possibly wow. could. Uh, but I, I think knowledge normally is because of curiosity, but curiosity mm. is sparked by one. Mm. And we, we even work it into the language, right? Hey, I wonder, you know, uh, why, why does that light grow ye glow yellow and this one glows sort of green? Wonder why. Mm. And, yeah. and the way I was raised and we tried to raise our kids was wonder is, is important and key. And it's kind of the excitement of life, wondering about things. And, and, and you, even the most knowledgeable, educated, uh, experienced person in the world hardly knows anything about anything. They just know pretty good stuff about a small subset of stuff. <laughs> most everything they just have to wonder about because they don't know. Yeah. And, and so acknowledging that that's the human normal. But when you actually do wonder about something, don't mm. just ask a question, but actually find out the real answer and then make mm. that answer part of who you are. Build yourself mm. a platform of actual, uh, complete understanding and knowledge of how the stuff around you works, because that platform just gets higher and higher. And then you can see all sorts of new things to wonder about. And, and that's how my parents raised me. And, mm -hmm. and that's how we, Helene and I worked hard to try and raise our kids. And, and I think it, it makes life more interesting. The more mm -hmm. things you understand, yeah. uh, you know, the more you then can pick out the beautiful nuance and, and mm -hmm. delights and things right on the edge of your own wonder. And no matter how much you learn, you're, you're always just going to be starting on that very first trail of trying yeah. to truly understand what's going on. John. Dave? <laughs> John? Dave. No, okay. I didn't think that was your voice first. No, Get, listen, yeah. as you know, we only recommend products we genuinely believe in. That's true. Right? With that being said, I'm excited to tell you about Canopy, a new partner of ours that is doing some incredible work. Canopy, ladies and gentlemen, is an app for families that uses state-of-the-art artificial intelligence to make the internet safe for kids by detecting and blocking pornography. Studies have shown that on average, kids today are exposed to pornography at age 11. As a parent, that statistic is very alarming. Very alarming. Canopy is an inexpensive and easy to use tool that gives parents the confidence to let their kids use the internet freely without fear of accidentally stumbling across some really graphic stuff. It works on most smartphones, tablets, and even computers too. So head on over to canopy.us slash dadville and use the code DADVILLE at checkout to get a discount and try it free for 30 days. It's so beautiful, too, to hear you say, um, even as someone who's been to space and seen what you've seen, that the Grand Canyon can still be beautiful. That's that's such a great reminder, you know, because I think it's it's easy to go, well, I haven't been to space, but it's like, well, you can still <laughs> go stare at that massive hole. I mean, we did that last year, and, and standing there, I was like, I thought I would be able to understand this, and I'm just absolutely gobsmacked right now by this experience you know yeah, well it gives you a sense of time right 
you can see yeah. millions of years and and uh and big numbers in time is something we just don't intuitively get and getting people yes, to start to wonder right. about that helps to put a lot of the other pieces in place yeah uh well thank you so we have two questions we always ask and these are always fun because we've been talking about your kids for a second uh but we asked this to all of our guests so i'll ask the first one one what's the one thing you want your kids to know uh, uh i want them to know that uh they they shouldn't count on other people for their own happiness their happiness is up to them mm. Mm. wow wow that is all right, last question. With actually, I have to say, I have another question that I'm going to ask. Okay. You, so, but this is quote unquote the last question. But what do you want your kids to say at your funeral? Hmm. Never thought about that. What do I want my kids to say at my funeral? I guess uh, I'd like them, you know, to cry and to laugh and, um, and to say that they were, you know, proud to have me as their dad, that they love me, mm. and that um, they learn stuff from me. Mm. And maybe that, even though I'm not there anymore, they'll still hear my voice inside their head. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. That's great. And I, I have to say a couple things. One, I still have tons of questions that we didn't get to. So <laughs> if you are looking for... <laughs> a like resident astronaut of a podcast you can be that you don't have to answer now we assume the answer is yes yeah, but you can yeah. be that for dadville yeah yeah so um i i really you know the, the all the things that you have accomplished in your life the spirit that you embody as a servant the way that you talk about you know, your role uh, re-entering into your family life as a husband, mm -hmm. as a dad, the way you talk about sort of like the dangers and the work-life balance, all that kind of stuff. It's really inspiring how mm -hmm. humble you are with all that you have accomplished. So I've, I've, that's something I'm walking away with. Mm -hmm. um, but lastly, I, I just wanted to ask about your books and your, and your writing. Like, what is the... you, you just put out this book uh, the apollo murders like what what is the role that writing fits in your life right now is it sort of have you always been a writer i know you've written you know yeah, it was my favorite four books, it was but... my favorite subject in school english and writing but but you know they were not going to let you fly a spaceship if you have a <laughs> so i recognized that hey i already know how to speak english and i, I know and i like writing so i should go study something else at university but you yeah. um but it's really nice now to be able to come around to it. But sort of the question bounces back to you, John, and that is, if you had just come back from six months in space with an incredible richness of personal experience and, and a head full of it and a changed perspective of the world, what would you do with that experience? Mm -hmm. you know, how Would you just keep it to yourself? Would you just kind of hint at it with yeah. your family? What would you do with it? And, and I think right. if I didn't do my best to try and share it, especially because of the sense of public trust, and the fact that I didn't pay to go, you know, I, other people trusted me to go do this thing, um, that I very much have a responsibility to share it every, that's why I'm talking to you, share it every single way that I can. And mm -hmm. so that's why I write music about it and did the master class about it and, you know, the TV shows and everything. But being able to write a book about it, it really gives you the time to put the thoughts in an organized way where someone privately can now sit with your thoughts and maybe 
decide if they can work some of them into their own life. So my first book was a book of ideas on, on how to lead a better life called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And then a book of images, because you should really see what it looks like. And then a kid's book on how not to be afraid, because mm-hmm. such a common thing. And, yeah. and it, it's okay to be afraid, but it's how you deal with your fear that's going to really dictate your whole life. And then mm-hmm. I thought, but I haven't really got to the nitty gritty of all this. Like, what is it actually truly like? And by writing uh, fiction, you can just get into how every single type of personality would react and all the, the, the great stuff and the stupid stuff and the day-to-day stuff that really happens. And so that's why I wrote The Apollo Murders. And also I wanted to see if I could write a thriller fiction. And, you know, it was written up yeah. in the New York Times and it's in 13 languages. And, and we're just signing now to, have it, to bring it to the screen. So oh, wow. It's fun and exciting. Um, and, 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 I'm, and I'm writing the next book in the series after The Apollo Murders now. But to me, so and it's fun, and it's and I enjoy yeah. writing, um, and and I enjoy now knowing that there are you know millions of people all around the world who are uh, sharing thoughts that I had and seeing yeah. some of the perspectives that I've done my best to try and uh, describe. So it's really fun. You know, I walk with mm-hmm. a complete stranger, and they go, "Hey, I, I'm I'm in the middle of your book, and holy cow, I can't believe what you you know." And that's really fun, you know. And yeah. so. Yeah. Um, so to me, in amongst everything else, being able to share it with other people is really the only fundamental part that's going to have lasting influence. Mm. How did you share your life with other people? Wow. And so writing is, is a wonderful legacy way to do that. And that's part of my motivation. Yeah. If uh, I just want to say this, if Ryan Reynolds is not available for that star role i do have a certain joie de vivre on screen it's just, hard just, to just let me read for it it's not, That's all I it's ask. hard to see through this right now but i really do carry a weight uh when when the camera starts rolling and i just want to put that out there all right uh thank you so much for your time it what is a great this has been, chat. A joy. This has been so great. yes 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 oh, yes you. dave john it's a pleasure to talk to you both i wish you both well and be healthy and uh I enjoyed the whole conversation. You asked me stuff nobody's ever asked me before. It made me think. So so I thank you for that. All right. We're one step closer to uh, being astronauts, John. That's all we have. There we go.